Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. The world has been looking at Africa as the continent of the future. This is because of Africa's mineral wealth and other natural resources that are plentiful on that continent. This has driven us to what we call today great power competition. The problem is that great power competition, which is driven by the scramble for resources, misses the great point. And the great point is that the biggest and most important resource in Africa is its youth, its population, its demographics. With a median age of 19 years, Africa is the youngest continent in the world. This means, again, as I've said so many times before on this podcast, the future of the world is held by Africans. African youth very key in everything that the world is grappling with, whether it's security, public health, climate change, workforce. We know that Europe is aging. Europe is resisted immigration. Europe is turning itself into a fortress. We can see this by the number of people who die in the Mediterranean Sea, most of them, of course, being young Africans. This is a call. It's a wake-up call because the world really need to adjust the way they look at Africa, particularly the greater north, need to change the way they look at Africa. Africa is not a continent that wants pity. Africa is a continent that is looking for partnership. And we know this because we've seen African youth mobilized over the last several years. We've had different movements. We've had Yanamar in Senegal, which successfully denied Abdullahi Wad, who was the president at the time, the change of constitution that he sought in order to stay in power longer. We saw this in Burkina Faso with Bali Citoyen, where young people said no when their dictator at the time, Blaise Compaoré, sought to subvert the constitutional order and stay in power longer. He eventually was driven out of the country altogether. We saw this in the DRC with Lucha and Filimbi, young movement that sought to deny Kabila and succeeded to deny President Kabila his perversion of the constitution. We've also seen this with NSARS in Nigeria, where the young people, the young Nigerians have sought, to some extent, succeeded in trying to change which would be in the, the order of law enforcement, corruption, and so on. We see this with fees must fall, roads must fall in South Africa, also hashtag this flag in Zimbabwe. The case of Nigeria, of course, was very brutal. We've seen other movements in Nigeria that have made an impact, like Yaga, like not too young to run, and so on. And it's also clear that while youth movements across the continent have been successful in the short run, they have struggled staying relevant in the long run. In other words, they like staying power. This is 
an issue that affects democratic change across the continent. If youth movement do not have staying power, it's very difficult to affect change. Joining me today to discuss the challenges that the youth movements face in Africa is a gentleman that many of us are familiar with, one Robert Giagulani Sentami, affectionately known as Bobby Wine. He's been a member of the Ugandan parliament. He worked, he represented Giadondo County East constituency in Wakiso district. He also was a presidential candidate in 2021, running against incumbent president Yoheri Kaguta Museveni. He's a superstar uh, music-wise, and I like to consider him a Renaissance man. Bobby Wine, welcome to Into Africa. Thank you very much, brother, for having me. I'm honored to be talking to you. So you are a man of many talents, many dimensions. How does Robert Kiagulani become Bobby Wine? Thank you. I like that you said I'm a man of many dimensions. Otherwise, earlier on, I was referring to myself as a man of many problems. How does Chagulanyi become Bobby Wine, or how does Bobby Wine become Chagulanyi? Yes, I was born Chagulanyi. While I was growing up, I fell in love with music. I became a musician, I became a performer, and as you know, the world over for artists, I don't know who started it, but we find ourselves having to re-baptize ourselves and find nicknames the world over. So when I was growing up, because my name is Robert and Robert is Bob, I adopted my name Bob, but I made it fancier to be Bobby. And then wine is an addition that I put on my name because I believed then, as I believe now, that the older I get, the better I become. So that's where Bobby Wine comes from. And I was doing my music for maybe, I've been doing my music for more than 20 years, although about five years ago, maybe four, Bobby Wayne again reinvented himself in Chagulanyi. When I got into the political space, I again re-identified as my original self, Chagulanyi. I ran for parliament, became a member of parliament. I was in parliament for two years and a few months. And I ran for president and I proudly defeated General Seveni, although I was not able to swear in. So here I am. Well, welcome again. As I said, you are transform yourself constantly. You had studied uh, music, dance, and arts at uh, Makere University, one of the biggest universities in East Africa. But then you decide to go back to school to study law. What inspires you to do the things that you do? The need to know and the need to put on the right armor for the right battle. In 2016, an election was rigged blatantly yet again by General Museveni and uh, Dr. Kizabes J, who rightfully won the election, could not be sworn in. And not only that, he was detained at his home, many people were killed, and a lot of mess went on. I had been thinking about it for a long time, but now this was the striking point. I thought that having sung and talked about all these issues for a long time, it was about time to practically get involved. But I needed the right qualifications and the right knowledge for that job that I was going for. And that's why in 2016, I decided to enroll at the East African University to study law. 
I've not yet graduated because my professor and I were forced to leave law school and go into the trenches. That's where we are, but I'm still doubling it, and hopefully I'll be graduating soon from law school. You use the term trenches. Trenches conjures up image of warfare. Do you feel like your life and the life of your fellow Ugandans is an issue of struggle and warfare? I don't just feel. I know that the lives of all Ugandans, 45 million Ugandans, whether involved in politics or not, is at risk. We are fallen with a sick healthcare system, with a messed up economy, with a messed up education system, with absolute military dictatorship. Everybody's life is in danger, those who know and those who don't know. But you know, you said everybody's in danger. In the West, there is a narrative, and this narrative has been there for a long time. Today, everybody talks about Rwanda as a country that is doing very well. You know, people use statistics and all kinds of numbers, indicators to show that. Before that, it was Uganda. President Museveni was touted and praised and fitted as one of the Renaissance leaders uh, in Africa. You take issue with that narrative? I never took issue at that narrative when it was real. I'm sure the world, nowhere in the world, that is said. Indeed, we must give it to General Museveni. In his earlier years, he did a good job fighting against HIV-AIDS, transforming the military from what it used to be. He did quite good between 1986 when he took power and 1996. The first 10 years were transformational. Unfortunately, like all other great revolutionaries, prized revolutionaries that turned into tyrants, just like Robert Mugabe was in the beginning, I mean, he was a very praised a leader. I was named after Robert Mugabe because he was a great leader. Unfortunately, he degenerated into a despised despot. That is what General Museveni did. The first five, ten years of his uh, rule were, you know, amazing. They were commendable. But it has been 37 years now. We had 10 years of bliss and we've had 27 years of misery and counting. When you decide to join the, uh, the democratic process and go to parliament, what exactly motivated you? You were younger than you are today. That was six years ago. What was the experience like? We talked early on at the outset, at the beginning of this discussion, that the youth of Africa are facing serious challenges in the struggle. I named a few of these movements, and some of them we didn't name, the many of them across the continent. What was your experience? You were you are still a young man, but you're just now crossing that border into adulthood now. <laughs> right? So so at 41, you have just demarking yourself from that gap there. As a young person, you carry the hope of other youth in Uganda but across the continent. I'm talking just about your experience as a name, Pete. How was it to campaign? How was it to mobilize votes? And how did you experience in the parliament? Thank you. Actually, on the contrary, I wouldn't refer to myself as a young man. I mean, in a continent of young people, a 41-year-old is an elder. <laughs> you okay, Sebo, what can you say? Especially when the life expectancy is not any big. Yeah, uh, first of all, I got into the political space practically because I wanted to lead 
by example, for a long time, the young people of Uganda, and I believe many other parts of Africa, had been distanced from the politics of their countries, knowing that actually everything in their lives is determined for the better or for the worse by politics. I am also culpable of the same because the things that I'm doing now, many times I wish I did them much earlier, but I'm one of the young people then they were not concerned about the politics of our country for as long as I was doing my role of entertaining and edutaining, like I love to call it those days, the people. However, I noticed that as an artist and as an influential person, I could do much more. And I, I'm glad that we have been able to inspire others to get into the politics and to know that it's going to take, especially the young people of Africa, to transform Africa. So I got into that political space, one, to speak for myself, but also to challenge others because I knew then, like I know now, that we have a lot of qualified and resourceful young people that only need to be inspired and enticed into getting into the political space. When I got to parliament, you asked me about my experience. That was a tough realization that in Uganda, and I believe in a few other uh, places in Africa, parliament, like many other institutions of state, were thoroughly captured. I mean, the parliament of Uganda, of course, with all due respect to it, has been reduced to a rubber stamp of General Yoweri Museveni. We were in parliament. I went in at a very critical time when General Museveni was pushing an agenda of amending the constitution of Uganda, which was forbidding him for, from running again after serving for 35 years. But he used parliament to rubber stamp that parliament was besieged by the military. In fact, Museveni's military army, commanded by his son, raided parliament and beat up members of parliament and forcefully pushed through to scrap off the article that was forbidding him from running again. And here we are again. We have General Museveni, more or less life president, unless something is done by Ugandans. Did you feel that as a parliament, parliament is the house of democracy, at least in principle, were you able to successfully introduce bills and gain the support of your colleagues? Or was that itself also a challenge? Parliament, like I said, is completely captured to the extent that even when a bill is extremely immoral, that it is not even supported by the members of the ruling party. If compromise and bribes fail, force is applied. The parliament is like a transactional house in Uganda where anything passes for as long as General Museveni pays them. We have a parliament that openly has members of parliament being paid in millions of shillings by the government openly to vote for a particular bill that is in the interest of General Museveni, and it works. That is what happened when he was changing uh, the constitution to remove term limits. That is what happened when he was again changing the constitution. He removed term limits in 2005, and then in 2017, when he was making an effort to change the parliament to scrap age limit, still he used money and he also used force. We also hear that he's trying to 
bring another bill that will scrap off uh, presidential elections to ensure that he does not have to go around the country to come face to face with resistance from the people, so he wants it to be done in parliament. And I believe if that time comes, he will use either bribes or force or both. In this parliament that you're talking about, Bobby, we also have an opposition wing, right, of which you were a member. Were there time of coalition where the opposition came together to push for bills that obviously will benefit your constituents. And how did that work? Is there any such possibility at all? Like I said, our parliament has been degenerating over time that it has come to that particular time when it's completely toothless, for lack of a better word, impotent. Nothing passes in parliament unless it is in the interest of General Museveni. My party agreed to send our comrades to parliament even after that openly and shamelessly rigged election because we wanted to use it as a front for further agitation but not expecting anything from parliament because like I said, besides the ruling party having more than 75% of the members of parliament, majority of whom are rigged into parliament or forcefully taken to parliament even when they lost elections, we only use it as a platform of agitation and exposure, exposing all that is being done by General Museveni using parliament. So you use the term agitation, that you go into parliament, meaning the opposition or the youth, to make a point, I suppose, and to make their presence and ideas be felt, at least if they are not going to become laws. You decide then to move into the presidency. What happened? Why were you motivated after the experience you just described in the parliament? Why would you want to seek the highest office in the country? Having seen that the parliament, just like the judiciary, were firmly captured by General Museveni and all the power is concentrated in the presidency, our only solution is to remove General Museveni so that we can again take back power to the institutions. General Museveni remains the singular problem to democracy. He remains the single disempowerment to the institutions. And we believe that without General Museveni, who uses the military and the national resources to arm twist all these institutions, we believe we can achieve servant leadership. So we want to remove the dictator himself. When you remove a dictator, the dictatorship crumbles and falls. By removing, you mean through the uh, democratic means of election, or do you mean otherwise? By any means necessary. By any means necessary. That is not going to endear you to the system. Well, I am not intending to be endeared to the system. I am intending to endear myself to the truth and reality. And why am I saying that? General Museveni has been defeated twice before by Dr. Kiza Besige, but by the use of the military, he still held Klangon to power. I defeated General Museveni in the recently concluded elections, but by using the military, we kept me under house arrested, everybody on my team switched off the internet and again crowned himself president. We know that dictators sometimes fall through elections, although very rarely, 
we know that dictators fall through popular uprisings, and that is an option that is also on the table. We also know that dictators fall through, you know, armed resistance. We have not put that on the table because we don't believe in violence. But like I said, we want to get our freedom by any means necessary. And like I said, I will not take that back. About the India ring of ourselves to the system, I don't know what system you're talking about, the Ugandan system or the international system. The international system is also culpable. I always struggle to look for a more decent word apart from hypocrisy to refer to the international community because General Museveni did not come to power through an election. General Museveni actually fought a democratically elected leader, Dr. Milton Obote, on a claim that the election of 1980 was rigged. And indeed, after a five-year war that General Museveni led that costed Uganda half a million lives, he said, while he was taking the presidency, that Africa's problem are the leaders that overstay in power. And he said that, that Uganda in particular has had a problem of leaders that overstay in power. Now, General Seven said that 37 years ago. He is still in power and does not want to be reminded of what he said. The international community saw that. The international community is watching everything, every value that brings us together as the international community being violated by General Seven. When Mugabe did what Museveni is doing, he was sanctioned. The same happened to Taylor, the same happened to Saddam, and many other dictators. The fact that the United States continues to give General Museveni up to the tune of one billion U.S. dollars in terms of military aid, which same military is being used to subvert democracy, to torture and kill people, to abuse human rights, I think I'm more than justified to say that we want to be free by any means necessary. So you do not care to be endeared to by uh, to endear yourself to the regime. And of course, all I mean is the regime is gonna come after you. They've been coming after you for a while now. How do you get the strength to do this? I get the strength to do this because I know what I'm doing is right by all standards. It is morally right, it is legally right, and I'm on the right side of history. In that history, you said a few moments ago that you won the election. Do you have, for those of us who are not in Uganda, for those of us who follow the development in your country from the distance, do you have proof of that that testified to your victory? Yes, please. A book was written called Rigged by Dr. Nico. It's online. A documentary which is premiering, we premiered it in New York only last week. It is in the theaters that shows the extent, not on of the vote rigging, not only the vote rigging, but also the issues that the people of Uganda are facing right now. But even according to their own calculations, even according to records and uh, declaration of result forms that were col collected from the whole country, leave alone the fact that in some areas the military blocked us from reaching there and others were blatantly falsified. If we were able to collect all declaration of result forms, we would, I believe, win General Seven by way beyond 80%. But the records that we have from the Uganda Electoral Commission itself show that we won General Seven 
by over 53.9% of the vote. So we have proof, legal proof, from the Electoral Commission of Uganda that we defeated General Museveni. And therefore, without fear of contradiction, I would confidently state that he is illegally president in Uganda. Over 53%, was that also... Did you have international observers? The government of Uganda and the Electoral Commission allowed the presence and participation of international observers. The United States election observers were blocked from observing the election. The European Union observers were blocked from observing the election. Independent international journalists were blocked from accessing the country. They were not accredited to cover the election. And even those that were already in the country were actually deported out of the country. The only observers, if any, I believe were those that are, were sponsored by the regime. I was recently in Kenya for an election observation, and we met presidential candidates. When I was candidate in Uganda, not a single observer. I didn't see a single observer. At least none of them reached to me. Let's talk about parliament, a place that you are very well acquainted with, having spent time there. I did happen to be in Uganda after the elections, and I saw a lot of billboards with the red berries, your associates, your friends, the young people. I had a sense that a lot of them want seats in municipalities as mayors, as a city council person, and so on. Is that the route that you think African youth should invest in so that they also not be in parliament, also be in municipalities? And what is your representation now today, the representation of the National Unity Platform in Parliament. African youth should aspire for any effective position of leadership, not only member of parliament, but any position of leadership. In fact, all leadership should be taken up by young people, of course, with guidance of the elders. Gladly, in this election, because we overwhelmed the regime and General Museveni was more concerned over him keeping the presidency and ensuring that he has the majority in parliament by whatever means he could use. And therefore, we were able to sweep the local government. We have majority of the mayors in cities and divisions and the municipalities, and we have majority of councillors, especially in urban areas. So we have a firm leadership in local government. And how do you see that evolving in the next, uh, let's say, 10 years? The youth who are 20 years today will be 30. Those who are 22 and municipality will be 30 and so on. How do you see that experience informing the process that the youth of Uganda and the youth of other countries are going through? Unfortunately, we have a high degree of uncertainty. It is definitely the right track to keep trading. It's a, it's a right thing to keep doing, to keep getting more and more youth into leadership. But again, the uncertainty that we have, not only in Uganda, but in Africa, is because democracy is very unstable now. In the case of Uganda, we have General Museveni's son, who does not believe in democracy and who believes that taking charge 
of the matters of the country is his birthright and he has to inherit his father's office. And there's a, a quite a, a number of, I would say, spoiled children of those that hold power that be actually believe that they should inherit power. And a wrong precedent is being set, a dangerous precedent is being set in Uganda that for in the ruling party, every member of parliament that loses a seat by way of death, it is either their son or daughter that is brought and imposed on the electorate by the Museveni government. So we have that uncertainty. And not only in Uganda, I mean, you've seen through the Sahel region when democracy is crumbling. It would be a perfect idea for the young people to keep pursuing leadership. It would put Africa at a, a whole different level in the next 10 years. The president's son, from what we see on social media, is also tapping into the young population. He sees himself as a young person and he's tapping into that, at least through his, uh, his postings. Do you see that as a challenge beyond the fact that he is obviously the son of the president? I would say that with the rise of the people power movement and the rise of the party that I lead, including myself, it has awakened the establishment in Uganda to the effectiveness and the power of young people. And the fact that General Museveni is way into his 80s, it distances him from the young people. So here he introduces his 50-year-old young man that he sees as the only link to the young people. It would be all right for anybody. In fact, I would even be more glad to see a 70-year-old that recognizes the importance and resourcefulness of young people. That would be great if it's done morally and legally. But General Museveni's son, who is also a serving military officer himself, is blatantly breaking the law because according to the laws of Uganda, a serving military officer is forbidden from engaging in partisan politics. It is for this same reason that quite a number of generals have faced it rough. They have been court-martialed in the past for simply making political statements. But we have General Museveni's son who goes around campaigning. He goes around the country campaigning in military uniform with the military and, and uh, national resources and other generals escorting him. And it is not seen as illegal. So, like I said, in Uganda, it is about General Museveni. And uh, it's the unfortunate fact about many parts of Africa that the ruling family tends to be above the law. And the law subscribes to them and not the other way around. You are no longer in parliament now, but you have people in parliament. You need, you know, change comes from different angles, but the legal process, however perverted, however corrupt they may be, still remain important. How many people do you have as a platform in parliament? And how do you keep a tight leash, if I can so speak, say, because you know what's happened, even with the municipality and others in a lot of countries, this is part of the weakness of the youth movement in Africa when I talk about staying power or the lack thereof. People can easily be co-opted. People can, can be bought, quote-unquote. 
So how many people do you have in parliament? What is the risk of losing those people to all the things that I just mentioned? Officially, as a party, we have 57 members of parliament, but they are quite... Out part- of how many? How, what's 57 the out of 500, although... So 10%, roughly 10 Oh, yeah. But quite a, a, a few others subscribe to us, so we have up to 100 that subscribe to our party. Some are from what? different opposition parties and others are independent, but... When in parliament, they subscribe to our caucus. So I would say we are working with 100 members of parliament in the parliament, roughly 20% of the parliament. You talked about co-optation, and yes, it is a modus operandi for dictators. As we speak now, we have two of our members of parliament that visibly co-opted, not officially, but visibly, I mean, they never used to side with the oppression of the regime, but now it's not an issue to them. So speaking of co-optation, yeah, that is a fact even in Uganda as in many other places. The people you represent, the young people movement, people power movement, is mostly young. In 2016, your song Kiwani was featured in the soundtrack of the Disney film Queen of Katwe. There are many queens and kings of Katwe and princes of Katwe around Uganda. How do you tap into that resource? How do you mobilize them for the future of your country? You are talking about the ghetto people, right? The common people. I'm talking about the common people, yes. We are largely supported by the common people because we are a grassroots movement. We are a common people movement. And largely young people, right? like you put it, by just existing, by just saying what we're saying, we are 100% representative of them. So we are firmly followed. We mobilize on social media since we are restricted from reaching them, from organizing, from public engagements. The militarized state in Uganda will not allow us to meet people, not even for a church function. So we use mainly social media as a way of communication, but also I am a musician. I am an artist. And that has been a very, very effective way of communicating to them. Young people are very easily bored by long speeches, passive speeches. So through music, not only my music, but other like-minded artists through skits, through arts, through poetry and through drama, we reach out, communicate, and mobilize. Robert Chiagulani Sentamu, Bobby Wine, for the rest of us, we really appreciate you joining us today on Into Africa. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for having me, and God bless. Power to Africa. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long.